How to Play, Episode 13, 1830. Hello and welcome everyone back to the How to Play podcast. This podcast is about teaching and learning games. In this podcast, I'm going to give you a full rules explanation of 1830. If you're interested in learning other games, check out our catalog. We have we have a lot of popular games, Agricola, Brass, Reef Encounter, so go back in the catalog and check them out. This episode was recorded on April 2nd, 2010, and today we're going to talk about 1830. What's 1830? 1830 is a part of a series of games known as 18xx. And from listening to this episode, you should have a solid understanding of what these games are about. And you could not only pick up 1830 and play it, but also have a great start in learning one of the other games of the series. There's actually hundreds of different variations of this system. And this system is worth learning because it's the granddaddy of train games. It's sort of the ultimate train game experience. You know, it's sort of what ASL is to war games, or what Twilight Imperium is to Space Conquest, or what Demacher is to Euro games. It's sort of that pinnacle experience. And it's not something you're going to do all the time, but it's definitely something that's worth experiencing if you're interested in that style of game. So this episode is going to be based on 1830 as the base of my explanation, as that's sort of the baseline of the system. But if you learn the basic concepts of this system through learning about 1830, you're going to be well prepared to handle any of the games in the series. If you're looking into getting into this series of games, I recommend being able to play 1830, or there's also two shorter versions called 18GA and 18AL. They're about Georgia and Alabama. And there's more complex versions such as 1856 and 1870. But the reason I'll be talking about 1830 is that it really gives the heart of the system. And it is rumored, supposedly, that 1830 should be coming out later this year in 2010. Now I'm not sure that that's going to happen, but those are the murmurings. So those of you who've been waiting patiently to get your hands on this without spending a hundred bucks or so on eBay can finally get it at an affordable price. There's also other ways to get involved in this series. I'll talk about which games to get into, how to get involved in the series, where to get the games, all that and more I'll talk about at the very end in the footnotes section of this episode. Now 1830 technically plays from three to six players. But ideally, you really want four or five players for this game. There are other incarnations of the game where, you know, might be better with three or, or might be better with more players. But 1830, we're looking for four or five. It was designed by the great Francis Tresham, famous for also being the designer of the epic game Civilization. Between the two of those games... I believe those are two landmarks in game design, and perhaps Francis Tresham should be knighted in the, in the game world for his contributions. They're just two amazing games, and way, way ahead of their time. Alright, so that's the good news. Um, the bad news is, is playtime on this game. In 1830, when you're learning the system, it's going to take at least five to six hours to get through your first game or two. It could take as long as eight, depending on 
the people that you're playing with and if everybody there who's never played the system before it's going to take a while to figure out what's really happening there and the decisions that you have to make there are beginner rules with a smaller bank and but even with this version you're still going to look at least a four hour time commitment with people who haven't played the game before when everyone knows the game and the game system depending on the play speed of the players the game can be played in around four hours complexity rating well I think I told you what you need to know right there I mean it's a four to eight hour time commitment so this is obviously a double black diamond it's a gamers game and it's only a game for people who are willing to sort of put in a day in learning this game once you once you know the system you maybe down to a half a day but it's really certainly an investment also this game is very mathy there are a lot of calculations that are most easiest done if you can just do a lot of calculations in your head um, and if doing math problems in your head is something that's sort of not the your players thing or the people that you're with if they're not really math people uh, that could make for a very long afternoon certainly you can have calculators nearby but but it's certainly a game of numbers and you're gonna want people who've got some good number sense and mathematic capabilities so with all that being said why should you invest so much time and effort and you know give up a whole day of gaming to to learn this system and or a half a day to play five or six hours to play 18xx for me it's one of the best game experiences out there it's it's just an epic game you start with a small amount of cash these little private companies and then you grow these corporations and you start another corporation your trains get faster and faster and it's just this epic story and when you get through this game whether you win it or not you really feel like you've almost experienced a part of history and the amount of choices you have to make is just such a deep game experience that it's hard to match in a two or three hour game and what always surprises me is the people who are willing to sit down and play three two hour games but balk at the idea of playing a five or six hour game when you're both putting in six hours of gaming so don't be afraid of the length of this game there there is the shorter version like I said you can give it a try and I really think you won't be disappointed this game is just a tremendous experience and a whole lot of fun so I hope you'll give it a shot learn the game system here with me and give it a try get your friends to come on board and learn this system and hopefully this podcast can be a help to you and your game club learning the 18xx system if you're able to get everyone on board and perhaps listen to this episode i think that would make your introductory game experience to 18xx a whole lot smoother so the goal of this show is to prepare you fully to play your first game of 1830 now if you've never heard of 1830 or the 18xx series and really just want to see what you'd be getting yourself into I really recommend as an introduction to watch the board games with Scott episode of 18xx he has a really good episode there if you've never watched board games with Scott he does a tremendous job he does uh, introductory and review episodes of various board games and he's got he's put in a lot of work there and they're all on video he gives a nice synopsis as well as what his thoughts on the game you can get episodes from him at uh, www.boardgameswithscott.com so watching that 18xx episode with him might help you determine whether 
18xx is something that you're interested in. And then hopefully you can come back and listen to this episode, which is going to flesh it all out for you, and you'll be ready to play. I will put a link to Scott's episode on the guild up there on Board Game Geek. So if you're new to the show, how we structure explanations here is I have a hook that gives you the main idea of the game. We have the meat, which is the main part of the rules. The hamster, which helps you pull it all together with a little bit of basic strategy. And then at the end, I have footnotes where I have little tiny rules that some people miss. And I will also have musings where I will talk about topics related to the game at hand. In the meat of this game, I'm going to do something a little bit different. Due to the complexity of this game, I'm going to cut the meat into little bite-sized chunks for you to make it all hopefully a little easier to digest. In each chunk, I will explain what concept you need to understand, going over the rules relating to that concept, and then review that concept. And this is really how I would approach a game of the complexity level of 18xx. You want to start with the main idea, and then bring in one major concept or one chunk, and then another concept that builds on the previous concept, and you're building knowledge. But at each step, you're going to introduce the main idea, and then review, and then move on to the next thing. And so those of you who are war gamers out there might want to consider using such an approach when you're explaining those games. And I hope that this format makes the episode a bit clearer and easier to comprehend. As always, I recommend having a copy of the game, uh, or the rule book, or at least images of the board, components from BoardGameGeek, you know, maybe just BoardGameGeek open on your laptop, just so that you can sort of look over what we're discussing here in this episode. After all of that, it's time for the hook. Buckle yourself in. We got a lot of work to do. Got your thinking caps on? Good. Let's begin. Part 1. The Hook. What the game is about. Ever wonder how those financial jerks live with themselves after building a corporation up, only to drain every cent out of it and leave it to die? Or better yet, dump that junk corporation onto an unsuspecting fellow investor? Well, you will get that joy of feeling such guilt as you do just that in the game of the harsh financial world, 1830. Of course, you could just build up a decent corporation and be happy to run it turn after turn, only to see such a corporation's profits flatline and be crushed by obsolescence. Business is not for the faint of heart. 1830 and all the 18xx games teach you this harsh lesson. Businesses are all well and good, but you must remember that they are only tools to make you money. The object of this game is to invest in various railroad corporations so as to be worth the most money at the end of the game. So the most money wins the game. How can you earn more money? Well, there are two major ways. The first way is to invest in a company and have its stock value go up. That stock will be worth more at the end of the game. Number two, you can own stock in a corporation that has a profitable train route and is paying out to its investors. And when it pays out, you'll get money. So those are the two major ways to get closer to victory in this game, is to have your stock value go up and to have stock in companies that are paying out. Now in this game, you have to continually be growing. So when you make more money, either through money gotten to you or your stock value goes up, you're going to take those profits and invest them again by either buying more stock or taking the stock that you have and sell it to buy other stock 
to start up a new railroad corporation to try to make even more money. And at the end of the game, which usually occurs when the bank runs out of money, you take your cash on hand and you add it to the final value of your stock, and whoever has the most net worth is the winner of the game. Part 2. The Meat. How to play the game. Okay, so the basic idea of this game is to invest in corporations and have them become more profitable. What's the structure in which this is done? The overall structure is that the game is played in two alternating phases. There's a stock round in which the players buy and sell stock, and then there are operating rounds in which the trains lay track tiles, they run their trains, they buy more trains. So we'll have buy stock, run trains, buy stock, run trains, and it will alternate in that way until the end of the game is reached. And essentially, in the beginning of the game, you want to buy enough stock so that you can start up your own train corporation. Well, how do you do that? That's our first concept. Concept number one, how to start up a corporation. All right, you can start up a corporation during the first stock round of the game. On your turn in a stock round, how it works is you can sell as much of your stock as you want, and then you can buy one stock certificate. And everybody's going to take turns doing that until everyone decides that they don't want to sell or buy anymore. In 1830, there are eight corporations to buy stock in. And when you buy stock, especially in the first turn of the game, you really want to be able to float, meaning start, a corporation. Each corporation has 10 shares. And when six of the 10 are bought, the company officially floats or starts. On the first few turns, you want to get a corporation started so that you can have that corporation run, which is what makes its stock value go up. You can just invest in other people's corporations and hope their stock goes up, but you'll have a lot more control and more options if you are in control of a corporation. Not to mention, it's a lot more fun than just sitting there and watch other people run train corporations. So, you want to start a corporation? Great! How do you decide which of those corporations to start? Well, what you are choosing when you choose a corporation to start is that each corporation has a starting location on the board. And some of those starting locations are better and they start up quicker because they're closer to more cities, which will earn you money more quickly, especially early in the game where it takes a while to build up that track. Specifically in the game 1830, I'll tell you that three of the better startup corporations are the CNO, because right over there by Chicago and some other things, the PPR, and the BNO. The BNO is down there next to a lot of cities. Now, the NYC, NYNH, and BNM aren't bad, and the other two, the Canadian and the Erie, I would wait to buy stock in those until later in the game. And the other distinguishing feature of the company is they each have a certain number of tokens, which we'll talk about what those tokens do a little bit later. So you want to start a corporation. Well, here's what you do. Say I want to start the CNO. The first person to buy stock in a corporation must buy the president's share. The president's share is worth two out of the 10 shares. Since I'm the first person to buy stock in the corporation, I get to decide what the initial value called the par value of the stock is. There are six different values you can choose from, ranging from $67 to $100. The different par values you could choose are 67, 71, 76, 82, 90, and 100. 
How do you decide where to set the price? Well, if you choose the lowest number, it'll be cheaper for you to start up. But when the corporation starts up, it's going to have less money in its treasury to work with. If you choose a higher number, it costs you more money to start up, but the corporation will have more money in its treasury to work with, and if you start at a higher stock value, you'll have a better chance of making that corporation stock worth the most money at the end of the game. And another added incentive, the corporation with the highest valued stock gets to go first. So there's a lot of advantages to having as high a par value as possible. So I'll tell you what people usually do is they set the value at the highest possible they can by still being able to start the company. So they take the money they have, say I have 500 bucks, I divide that by six and figure out what's the most I can set my par value at and still be able to start the company. So anyways, getting back to my first stock round turn, I'm trying to start up that CNO company. I would say, I'm gonna start the CNO. And let's start it at $82. Remember, I get to choose that price of those six choices. So I take the president's share, and that president's share is two shares, so it costs 82 times two, which is $164. And that's my turn. And for the next four rounds, it'll come around to me, and I'll buy another share of the CNO for $82 until I get to that magic number of six shares of stock. When a corporation has six shares of stock, it floats, which means it's ready to operate. At this point, as the president, you'll get the corporation charter, which is a small little piece of cardboard. And all that does is it shows that you are the president of the corporation, and it's also a place to keep your trains, uh, the, the tokens for the corporation, and the treasury of the corporation. When your corporation floats, it gets fully capitalized, means it gets the money. It gets all of the money. So there are 10 shares, so the starting money it gets is 10 times the par value. So this is why it's good to set it as high as possible. So I set it at 82, so this company gets 82 times 10, which is $820. And that is the corporation starting money, and that's basically all the money that corporation is going to get unless it withholds profits. And you can see that if I was able to start it at a hundred par value, I would have 10 times a hundred or a thousand bucks to get going, which is really nice. The last thing you do is you take one of the corporation's circular tokens and you place it on the stock chart, on the stock market there. The stock chart shows the value of that company's stock and it starts at the par value. So if I said 82, it's gonna start in the 82 box, and hopefully it's gonna move up and to the right and go up, but at sometimes it will go down and to the left, meaning the numbers will go down, meaning my stock will be worth less. And that's basically gonna be the first stock round in the game. Everybody's gonna to try to start up one company if they can, and maybe they'll buy a piece of stock in somebody else's company, but generally they're just starting up their own company. Now this is where it's important to point out that it's essential that you very clearly differentiate between your own personal money as an investor from your corporation's money. And that's why corporation's money is placed on the charter. And personal money is clearly in a separate stack. You are never allowed to mix this money. Your corporation's money is what they have to buy trains, their tokens, and so on. Your personal money is what you're trying to build up to win the game. Now you may want to borrow your corporation some money to help them buy a train or something, but you're not allowed to. And you're not allowed to steal money from your corporation at will. This is referred to as cheating. Now don't worry, there are definitely ways to bleed all the money out of a corporation, but you can't just take the money and put it into your pocket. You have to steal it 
air quotes, legitimately. So like I said, everyone who can is going to try to start up a corporation by buying six shares of stock. When everybody passes in succession, the stock round ends. And whoever took the last action in the stock round will go last in the next stock round. So the next person clockwise to that person gets what is called the priority deal card. And this is a big deal because going first in the stock round can be huge. And we'll talk about why later. So again, let's go over that. I buy the last piece of stock. The person to my left will get the priority deal and get to go first in the next stock round. So he'll get that little card because it's gonna be a little while before that next stock round happens to remind them. So it's time to review concept number one, starting up a corporation in the stock round. Do you know how to start up a corporation? Well, you want to start up a corporation so that its stock value can go up and it will pay off dividends. It will pay you more money. And you start up a corporation by buying six shares of stock in a corporation. If you start buying stock, you get the president's share, which is two shares. You get to start the initial value, which is going to be between $60 and $100. Then you'll buy four more shares of that. The company will get its starting money and you're ready to operate, which brings us to our next concept. Concept number two, operating a corporation. So after the stock round is complete, we moved on to the operating round. In an operating round, all the active corporations get to operate to try to make money. The active corporations go in order from the highest stock value to the lowest. Here are the major steps to take when you operate your corporation. First, you'll lay a tile which has track on it to lengthen your corporation's track. Then you can buy a station token. You'll then run your trains to see how much money you get. You'll decide what to do with the money, either withhold it for the corporation or pay it out to the stockholders. Then you may buy new trains. And so let's say I'm the CNO. I have the highest stock valued corporation. I'm going to do all of that. I'm going to lay a tile. I may buy a token, run my trains, decide what to do with the money, and buy new trains. Then my turn is over. Then we go to the next corporation. Say it's the BNO. They lay a tile, buy a token, and so on. And you'll go through that until everyone has had one turn. Now let's go over each of those steps in more detail. Now the actual first step, if you just started a corporation, is they get their starting station token, which goes in that corporation's home tile, which is printed on the board. So they, one of their tokens, the one that's marked free, goes on the starting place. You don't have a choice where that goes. That's where your company starts. Then you may lay a tile. Every operating round, you're allowed to play one tile. At the beginning of the game, you're only allowed to lay yellow tiles, and these are the most basic tiles. Yellow tiles are generally either a straight piece of track or a simple curve. You must lay tiles to extend track from your corporation in some way. You can't lay it anywhere on the board. You have to lay it extending from that station token. So most corporations have a starting hex with one or two rails coming out that you will be extending. So you simply choose a yellow tile, play it on the board to make your corporation's track longer. Playing a tile is usually free. It doesn't cost you anything to build that track. It's just part of your turn. You get to play one tile for free each turn. Unless you build on terrain. There are some mountains and rivers to cross on the board. And if you choose to build a tile on one of these hexes, your corporation has to pay the cost printed on the board, 80 or $120. And it's important to remember that that money is going to come from the corporation, so the money on your charter, and not your personal money. 
And so this means is if your corporation is out of money, you can't play a tile to cross the mountains or the rivers. What are you trying to do when you lay this track? Well, you want to connect to as many cities as possible. Because when you run trains, running trains to cities is what makes you money. Cities are represented by the white circles on the board. And if you play track on a hex with a white circle, you must use a tile that shows a white circle. Some hexes have one or two small black dots. These are towns. If you build on a hex with one or two towns, you have to choose a track tile with one or two black little hash marks. The towns are represented by these hash marks. And let me tell you, towns are kind of an annoyance, at least in the base game 1830, because you have to stop there, and towns don't earn you nearly as much money as the cities. So you're trying to connect a lot of those white circles together. Also, you need to be aware that there's some special hexes that use special tiles. In 1830, these special tiles are designated with the codes OO, B, and NY. These tiles may only be used on specific hexes. For example, the B tiles are for use only in Boston and Baltimore. And other maps have specific tiles. They may say a certain city on them. Tiles are limited by what's available there. So if someone uses up all of one kind of tile, you're out of luck. You have to use a different one. So that's tile lane in a nutshell. You'll start by laying yellow tiles to try to connect to cities. Next, you may buy a station token. Like I said earlier, you start with one station token at your home and you have the opportunity to play more. Now what do these station tokens do? Well, they show you where you can run your trains. When you run your trains, you have to start, go through, or end at one of your stations. In addition, if a city starts with an empty white circle, as long as there's an empty circle in a city, any corporation may run through that city. But if that circle is blocked up, the only corporations that have stations there can run through the city. So if there's a yellow tile with, say, CNO on there, the CNO can run through that tile. All of the other corporations have to stop at that tile. They cannot go through it. So what stations do is they give you more places to run your trains, and they effectively block out the other corporations from running through cities. So these station tokens are very useful, but they are kind of expensive and they're very limited. You're gonna only have one to three of these to play for your corporation. So your starting station, you get for free. Like we already said, when you first start up, it starts at your starting location. After that, your first extra station costs the corporation, comes from the charter, not from you, $40. And when you buy that, you can place it in any city that you're currently connected to that has an empty white circle. The next ones, if you have more, cost $100. Though you can only play one of these station tokens per turn. Now, like I said, you only have one to three available for the corporation for the whole game. So you have to really judiciously decide where to put them. And probably, in most cases, you'll wait till the board develops a little bit, where other corporations are threatening your position. They start moving in on your track. And you want to realize when you can block them out of certain track before they block you out. The next step in an operating round is to run your trains. Running trains in this game is a bit different than maybe you are used to. To run your train, you don't move any train pieces around or anything. You just look at your track and you declare which cities you want to run on. So if I have a two train, and say I'm going to start at this city where I have my station, and I'm going to run to another city. Each city has a value, 
early in the game, cities are typically worth 20 bucks. So if I run between two cities, I'd get 20 and 20, I'd earn 40 bucks for that turn. I could have two two trains, in which case I might start at my starting city where my station is, and go to one city west and run the other train to the next city east. So each train would earn me $40. 20 and 20, and the other one would get 20 and 20. Of course, there might be one of those pesky towns in your way, those hash marks, and in that case, you would run between the city and the town. Towns are usually worth $10, so that would only give you a profit of 30. Now, later in the game, bigger trains are available. I might be able to get a three train, and maybe with that, I could run from a city to a town to another city. And that's as far as I get. So this three train now earned me 20 plus 10 plus 20, a profit of 50, and so on. You're going to get larger and larger trains that are going to be able to go further and further. When you declare your runs, you can't run on the same piece of track twice. So if I have two trains, but only one route between two cities, I only can run one train and make $40. That's why it's good to have one going out one way and one going out the other way. So I'm going to have to get to work playing tiles to give me another route. Remember, each route must either start, go through, or end at one of your station tokens. You can start and end routes at cities, towns, or red areas. Red areas are locations that are considered off the board. So for example, if I had a three train, I might start at the red area of Chicago, it runs into a city, and then goes into another city. That's three locations. Chicago, city, city. And the last one is where my CNO token was. So I get 40 plus 20 plus 20. That route earns me 80. Remember that as I said earlier, you cannot go through a city if it has all of its city circles blocked by stations. And you cannot go through a city twice with the same run. Though you can get paid for the same city twice, like in my previous example where I had two trains running in opposite directions, I'm essentially getting paid for that city twice. Alright, so you made some money, you have profits. What are you going to do with that money? That's the next step of your turn. You have to decide what to do with the money. So let's use my last example. I ran with a three train and I made $80. I have two choices of what to do with that money. Pay dividends to the stockholders or withhold the money for the corporation. In most cases, you're going to want to pay dividends so that the money gets paid out to the stockholders. How does that happen? Well, all of the revenue is always a multiple of 10 because there are 10 shares, and that way it divides really nicely by 10. So like I said, if you made $80, there are 10 shares. So if your company made $80, there are 10 shares, and 80 divided by 10 is 8. So that company pays out $8 per share. Since you hold six shares of that, you get paid into your personal money, not your corporation's money, six times eight, which is 48 bucks. And anyone else who bought a share in your company would also get $8 for each share they have. Now, since your corporation is paying out the profits, your stockholders are happy and the stock value goes up. So you take your stock token and you move it one spot to the right and flip it over. You can see how that stock board shows that this increases the value of the stock. Now flipping it over shows that that corporation has completed its run for the round and your operating turn is just about over. 
In some cases, you're going to need more money for the corporation, either to play a hex or to play a station, or most likely saving for a train. And in that case, you will say, my corporation is going to withhold the profits. It gets to take the money, take that $80, and that $80 all goes directly into the corporation's treasury. And that makes the stockholders mad. Boo! So the stock token goes to the left one spot. When you flip it over, and you can see that this is making the stock value go down, and all your stock holdings become worth less money. But sometimes you have to do what you have to do. So those are your choices of what to do with your profits. Pay dividends out to the stockholders, giving you money and making the stock value go to the right, making it more valuable, or withhold earnings for the corporation, giving your corporation the money, but your stock value goes to the left, making your stock less valuable. Now, the last thing you do on an operating round is you may buy trains. In fact, if your corporation does not have a train and has a legal route of two cities connected, you have to buy a train. And in most cases, you're going to want to buy a train anyways. Most times, you'll be buying a train from the bank. Trains have to be bought from the bank in order. So at the beginning of the game, you have to buy the two trains, meaning they can only travel two stops on a route. And as the game progresses, you'll be able to buy better, but much more expensive trains. So there's three trains, four trains, fives, and sixes, and you'll notice they escalate in price quite a bit, and there's fewer of those higher number trains. So timing and competition to get those big trains can be quite fierce. And lastly, at the end, you'll see those trains marked with a D. These are called diesels. Diesels are very expensive but they can go as far as you can possibly travel before running into a red area or getting blocked off by station. So those diesel trains can earn you a lot of money if you've built up a great route good enough to take advantage of them. But I'll talk a lot more about buying trains in just a minute. For now, let's review concept number two, owning a corporation. Now let's go over again what can you do in your operating round. You lay one tile for track, you may buy a token, then you run your train, you can pay out or withhold the money, and then you can buy a train. Now pay attention to the order of those actions because you can't switch around the order even if you might want to. It's always tile, token, run, decide what to do with the money, you may buy a train. Now let's step back, look at the big picture, and think about how this plays out at the beginning of the game. I start the CNO Corporation in the first stock round. Now we get to the operating round. I get my free token where the corporation starts, and now I get to lay my free tile. I lay a track tile connected to the CNO starting space, and I lay a curved piece of track heading towards Chicago, so that next turn I can connect to Chicago and I can have a run. Now I run my train, but I don't have a train yet. So now I pay out or withhold. Now I have nothing to pay out since I don't have a train to run. So my stock value goes to the left one space. All corporations will go back their first operating turn because they must buy a train that turn and you can't run trains before you buy a train. Now I'm allowed to buy a train. I spend money from the CNO's treasury to buy a two train. I could buy a second two train, but since I don't have a route for it yet, I'm gonna hold off and just buy one. Now all the other corporations get to do their turn. Now it's back to a stock round. In the second stock round, a lot of times not that much buying occurs because nobody has that much money left over. 
So now we get to the second operating round. First, the CNO lays a tile and connects to Chicago. Next, I could lay a station, but I don't want to, and I don't have anywhere I could play a token anyways. Now it's time to run my train. I have track connected between a city and Chicago, the red offboard location. So say I run my train between that city and Chicago, I count the values printed on the map, 30 and 40, which is 70. My train earns 70 bucks in profit. Now I don't want my stock value to slide back anymore, so I pay out dividends. My train made $70. I divide that by 10, so that's a payout of $7 per share. Remember, I own six of those shares because it took six to start it up. Six times seven is 42. I earn 42 bucks, and that goes in my personal money, which I take from the bank. And if anyone else owned a share of my corporation, then they would get $7 for each share that they had. And that's the end of my second turn, and I'm on my way. So now you know the heart of the game. What you're trying to do is buy stock to start a corporation, or you can buy stock in other players' corporations. Then in the operating round, you're going to lay tiles to make profitable routes, lay stations to get more routes, run the trains to get money, decide what to do with the money to either pay it out to the stockholders or withhold, buy new trains, and do it all over again. So that's the basic gist of the game, but we still have four major concepts that you need to understand. Let's get to concept number three. Concept number three the train progression. Alright, as you progress through the game, you'll be buying trains that can travel farther and earn you more money. The twos, the threes, the fours, and so on. And this purchasing of trains acts as kind of a clock in the phases of this game and in railroading history. And it's almost like different periods of the railroading empire. And this is where you get that grand sweep of story as the game sort of evolves as you go through the game. Now the train buying mechanism is one of the more clever bits of how to incorporate timing into a board game. As soon as someone buys the first three train, and remember they have to be bought sequentially, so all the two trains have to be bought, and then someone can buy the first three. And when that happens, some changes occur in the game. And two of the most major changes that happen from a new train being bought are new tiles are available and train rusting. Let's talk about these things. In the beginning of the game, all played tiles must be the yellow simple tiles. As soon as the first three train is bought, you may now upgrade yellow tiles into green tiles. And how you do this is for your one tile lay during the operating round of a corporation, now you have two options. You could either lay a yellow tile or you can upgrade a yellow tile into a green tile. You're never allowed to just take a green tile and put it on the board. Why do you want to lay green tiles? Well, you can increase the value of the cities. Standard cities with the yellow track are worth 20, and if you upgrade it to a green city tile, then now it's worth 30. Also, the other nice thing is it has two circles for stations. So if a player had that city blocked off, when you upgrade it, they get to keep their station there, but now there's an empty circle, so you can either run through that city freely, or maybe put your own station there. The other main reason you would want to upgrade a tile to a green tile is maybe to cut through an existing tile. When you replace, you have to leave the original track there, but there are green tiles that have crossing track, so whereas there might have been a straight yellow tile there, you could replace it with an X track piece, so that you would leave the line already built there, but you would also add another line to cut through that hex from another direction. 
So that's what green tiles do. And later on in the game, you can start laying brown tiles, which are even more complex and increase the value of the cities even more. The other thing to know about adding new tiles to the game, it also adds more operating rounds to the game. When those green tiles are available, in the next operating round, you're actually going to do two operating rounds before the stock round. So it will go stock round, operating round, operating round and so on and continue like that because at this point players have some corporations and they're able to run them more and more there's more track on the board and they're able to earn more money later in the game when those brown tiles come on the board now you do three operating rounds before you do a stock round so you do stock round three operating rounds stock round three operating rounds until the end of the game the other thing that happens from this train progression is that trains become obsolete known colloquially in the game as rusting. Rusting is one of the nastier part of the games, meaning that once someone buys that first four train, these fancy new four trains have been invented and no one will ride those dusty old two trains anymore. So what happens is all the two trains are removed from the game. Yikes! You have to kind of pace yourself and anticipate these things happening. For example, if you overcommit on those early trains, say you buy three, two trains, and you spend a lot of your corporation's money on tokens and hex lays, and you don't have much money left in the treasury, when someone buys that four train, you'll have no trains and almost no money left in your treasury, and you will be very sad. What you want to do is to pace yourself and play sort of a waiting game to maybe try to get a three and so on and save money for those later trains. Because remember how operating worked. If it got to your turn, and you had no train on your turn, you can't run that turn. And if you don't run, your stock value goes to the left, which is decreasing your stock value. Because you can't buy your fancy new train until the end of an operating round. So whoever's looking at buying that first four train has to think, does this help me or hurt me? Or does this hurt me or my opponents more? So the buy of that first four train is the first time this happens, but it happens again when someone buys the first six train, the three trains rust. And then when someone buys the first diesel train, the four trains rust. Meaning that, and this is very important, the only trains that will never go away are the fives, the sixes, and the diesels. Therefore, these are referred to as permanent trains. And you have to plan for making sure your corporation has enough money to purchase at least one of these permanent trains. Because if your corporation doesn't have enough money, then you will end up paying for it out of your own personal pocket. Here's how this works, and it's very sad and depressing when this happens. Let's say I get further in the game with that CNO corporation, and I have only one four train for my corporation, and another player buys a diesel. My four train rusts. It gets to be my turn, and life is very sad for me. I have no train. I can lay a tile, yippee-dippee, and then I have no run because I have no train, so my stock slides one to the left. Sadness. Then I must buy a train. The only trains left remaining are diesels. Diesels cost 1100 bucks. I don't even have a long enough route to even want a diesel, but that's all that's left, and as the president, I'm forced to buy a train. There's only 300 bucks left in the CNO's corporation treasury. The corporation contributes all the money it has. It has no choice. Then, as the president, it's my responsibility to buy the train out of my own pocket. 
I use my personal money to pay 800 bucks of my hard-earned cash to buy that corporation a train. That's essentially putting me back 800 bucks from all the other players because personal cash is what wins you the game. If I didn't have the money, I'd have to sell stock until I had enough money. I'd sell stock right there and then. This is the only time you would buy or sell stock outside of a stock round. If I sold all my stock and I still didn't have enough money, I would be bankrupt and the game would end immediately. We'd add up cash on hand and the stock value and the highest total would win. Which is somewhat likely to happen in these games, especially if you're playing with people who really know what they're doing and they know they have a slight cash advantage and they see an opportunity to buy a train early to bankrupt you, they will do it. So let's review concept number three, the train progression. Trains have to be bought in order. Each train goes farther and costs more. And with each new train, rules change in the game. More tiles are allowed, more operating rounds between stock rounds, and trains rust. In fact, it's likely that people will buy a train and you'll be left with a corporation with no train and no money and you'll have to buy it out of pocket. So you need to plan ahead to make sure that this doesn't happen to you. How do you do that? One way to help you handle this train crisis is by owning two corporations. Concept number four, owning two corporations. Eventually, say about three to five turns into the game, you'll have enough profits to start up a second corporation. Your second corporation, you'll be able to start at a higher par value. You could even benefit from all the track that's already been laid on the board, as all track laid on the board is public. You don't own track like you might in, say, Age of Steam. The only thing restricting people from using track on the board is if a city is jammed with stations so that people can't get through. The other nice thing about starting a second corporation is you get to start with a better train as it's later in the game, and you might be able to get a permanent train right off the bat. Owning two corporations really gives you more options and more potential to make money. It's even possible to own three corporations. One of the reasons is because if you own two corporations, you'll have more stock invested, and that stock, hopefully, will gain value from turn to turn. Another large benefit to owning two corporations is the ability for those corporations to buy trains from one another. So say in the previous example, I had the CNO without a train, but maybe I had the second corporation was able to get both a five and a six train. Well, happy day. Instead of buying that diesel from the bank, I will buy a five from my other corporation and my problem is solved. How much do I pay for it? Well, if I'm the president of both corporations, I get to decide. How about one dollar? Fine, you're the president. You have to buy it for at least one dollar. But maybe the other corporation needed money to try to buy a diesel. I could give them all 300 of my money. Or maybe I needed 100 bucks for a station but wanted to keep money for stations with the other company. So $100 it is. You can see how this gives you a lot of flexibility. Keep in mind that buying a train happens at the end of a buying corporation's turn. So in this case, the CNO would still not get to run. At the end of their turn, they'd slide back on the stock chart, but they'd be able to buy the train at the end of that turn. You cannot sell a train. Um, I cannot say I own the Canadian. I can't sell the 
five train to the other corporation during the buying trains phase. You only buy trains on the during the buy train phase. So sometimes that can be confusing when you're owning two corporations. And the timing of that can be a bit tricky. So the company buying the train has to buy it during their operating term. So let's review concept number four. It's good to own two corporations because you can manage your trains better. Maybe come in with a corporation at a higher par value. You can play one corporation off the other and take advantage of pre-built track. More corporations means more stock value increases. So it all seems like a nice friendly game so far, right? Build up a corporation, make money, pay out the profits, everybody's happy, right? Well, the last thing you can do with two corporations might damage your friendship with some of your game buddies. This is one of the nastiest part of the game. If you time things very well and you have two corporations, you could buy the only train from one of your corporations for a dollar and leave yourself with a corporation with no trains and a dollar in the treasury and another corporation loaded with tons of money and two really nice trains. Why would you want to do that? Because when it gets to be your turn in the stock round, you could sell all your stock in that corporation and means uh, some other poor sucker who bought some shares in your corporation thusly becomes responsible and becomes a president of the corporation. A corporation with no money, no trains, and whose stock is worth almost nothing. Somebody's going to be buying a train for that corporation out of their own pocket. Which brings us to our next topic. Concept number five, sneaky stock shenanigans, or how to play the stock market. So building train routes is fun and all that, but the great part is that's only about a third of the game. Another large chunk is being your ability to play the stock market. One of the most drastic things that can happen in a stock round is the situation I just described, a corporation dump. So let's talk about that for a minute. If things don't go so well and a corporation is tanking, or you want to just arrange it sneakily as I just described, you might be in a situation where you want to unload a corporation or dump that corporation on someone else. If someone ever has more shares than you, and they have at least two shares of that corporation, then they become the new president of that corporation. So remember, usually you have six shares of a company. If you sell five of your shares, and someone else has at least two, then they get to become the new president. Hooray! They have to have at least two shares, because remember, the president's share is worth two. So they would exchange for that president's share. You give them the charter, and that corporation is now their problem. Of course, there are a lot of things you need to do to make that work. One of them is making sure that you have the priority deal, or at least you will go first before them in the stock round. Remember that priority deal card was given to the person who gets to go first in the stock round. It was given to the person sitting clockwise after the person who went last in the previous stock round. Now, it's not going to work at all if they get to go before you, because if they get to go first and they see that you unloaded all your money and your trains, then they're definitely going to suspect something is up and they'll get to sell their stock first and you'll have no one to dump that corporation on and you'll just be stuck with it. You can't just unload a corporation you don't want if there's no one else to take it, if no one has at least two shares. And it is possible to have the opposite situation occur. You could have a corporation takeover because if someone gets more shares than someone else, then they will own the company. Say you only have three shares of a company, and one of your opponents has two. 
If over the next two stock rounds they buy two more shares of that corporation, they take over the company. They get the charter, the treasury, and that might be a good thing for them because it might be a profitable company. But generally, this is pretty rare because usually people won't have much less than six shares and there's only 10 shares in the company. Or at least they will have the money to be able to protect their corporation by buying another share or two so that they can't get more than you. Now let's go back to the basics of the stock round and some rules about the stock round. On your turn, in a stock round, you may sell any amount of stock and buy one stock certificate. You can do these things in either order. The stock round goes around and around till no one wants to do anything anymore, usually when no one has enough money to buy any more stock. Now when you sell your stock, what happens? Well, it goes into the bank pool, which is a separate area of sold stock. It also drops the value of the stock. The stock value goes down one square on the stock chart for each share that is sold. And when the stock is going down, the stock market is going down, it's decreasing in value. So let's say I want to sell three shares of CNO. I look at the current price of CNO, and that's how much money I'm going to get per share. It's $82 per share. So 82 times 3 is 246 I get $246 and the stock value of CNO goes down three squares to 67. So I just tanked the value of CNO for anyone holding it, including me. Notice that I sold those all at once. I didn't sell one, get the value, and then it goes down. Sell one, get the value, and get it down. I can do that if I want, but usually I want to sell it all simultaneously so that I get the maximum value of it. I can sell shares from different corporations on the same stock round. I could sell a few shares of CNO, a few shares of BNO, and then buy one share of something else. That would be a typical turn. So here's another dirty trick. You could spend three turns buying three shares of an opponent's corporation. Say the Pennsylvania Railroad. I'll buy a Pennsylvania. I'll buy a Pennsylvania. I'll buy a Pennsylvania. And then on that third turn, you sell all three shares of those stock, and you drop that person's stock value three spots on the stock chart, which is a pretty significant chunk. Luckily, there is a bottom line, so there's only so far you can do that. Especially if you get your company further to the right, there are shelves protecting your stock value from going down too far. And that'll protect you from such evil, dirty tricks. Some other things to know about the stock round. You have a limit for how many stock certificates you can hold. That depends on the number of players. You're also only allowed to hold a maximum of six shares in one company. So remember if I own that CNO and I got up to my six shares to float it, that's the most I can hold of it. I can't buy a seventh or an eighth. I have to allow other players to invest in that corporation. Also, the bank will only except up to five shares of any one corporation. So only five of those shares can be in that sold bank pool at one time. If there's already five shares into that bank pool, you can't sell any more shares of that particular company. Um, another rule to protect you from even more evilness, once you sell stock in a corporation, you can't buy that same stock that stock round. So let's say that example, I bought three Pennsylvania, I sold three Pennsylvania. I can't then buy those Pennsylvania again to sell it again, to repeat that. That would just be too mean. It's not allowed. Although there's nothing to stop me from doing it again next round. Also, you can buy stock in corporations that haven't started um, or won't start in a stock round. But let me tell you that this is a bad move as you'll just sort of have frozen money. Like say the Erie, you only have enough to buy two shares as so you, you start two shares of the Erie and it just will sit there. 
over the next operating rounds. Your money is flatlining. It's not increasing in value. An 18xx is all about keeping your money invested and keeping your money increasing in value. Which means you do want to spend as much money as possible during the stock rounds. You want to be fully invested. And since you can only buy so much of your own stock, you'll have to, to make more money, buy stock in other players' corporations because they want that stock to go up and they will go up in value and pay out when their corporation makes money. And as I said before, they are allowed to dump those corporations or they may be able to. So, But know that you can always buy one share of any corporation safely without them being able to dump it on you because you need two to get that president's share. But to be fully invested, you may have to risk it and buy more of a certain company. In order to decide which stock to purchase, you really should pay attention to the status of the different corporations, and you want to try to read the intentions of the president for that corporation. Pay attention to how much that corporation can run for, who's running for the most, who has the best runs on the board. What trains does that corporation have? How much money is in their treasury? And does that player have two corporations? If they have two corporations, it makes them more able to and more likely that they'll be able to dump one of those companies. But you can't make as much money if you just sit on your money, and you can't invest fully without taking some risk, and that's sort of the excitement of the game. It's good to know you are allowed to pass out of in a stock round and then come back into the stock round if you want to. You could sort of field out, see what the other players are doing. But remember that if you're the last person to do an action in that stock round, you'll go last in the next stock round. And the player to your left will get priority deal. Which can be very important, being able to act first in the stock round. And be sort of a weak position to have to act last. And the last thing you need to know about the stock round is that at the end of a stock round, if all the stock of a particular corporation is in players' hands, that corporation stock goes up one space, increasing in its value. So say I have six of those shares of CNO, the other players have the other four, then we move that stock marker up one spot. So let's review concept number four, the stock market. In each stock round, remember you can sell as much as you want and then buy one share certificate in any order. And they'll continue around the table. Generally, you want to fully invest, spend all of your cash possible in each stock round. So you want to buy into other players' corporations. Or in the middle of the game, you want to be able to start up another corporation. You're going to buy six shares of that and get that other corporation going. Selling stock is a good strategy for devaluing your opponent's stock. Or you may be able to set up an escape for a failing corporation by selling stock so that an opponent has more than you and make them the president. Or you may be able to dump a corporation for a failing corporation by selling all your stock so that you give it to one of your opponents. And you need to know that stock, your stock of value is about half of your net worth at the end of the game. So you want to make your stock be worth the most by the end of the game. So you want to work on getting that stock of yours to go up. Let's review how stock value changes in the game. Your corporation has a circular marker on the stock grid. Stock can go four directions on the stock chart. You want your stock to head up and to the right because those are increasing in value. Stock goes up one space. If all the shares are sold at the end of the stock round, they're all in players' hands. Stock goes to the right at the end of an operating round when a trained corporation pays out dividends and does not keep the money. Stock goes down and to the left is decreasing in value. 
Stock goes down during a stock round for each share that's sold by a player. So player sells four shares, it goes down four spots. Stock goes to the left during an operating round whenever a train decides to keep the profits from its run and withhold the money for the corporation, or if that corporation is unable to run due to the lack of a train. So you want to keep your stock going up and to the right whenever possible, though every once in a while you'll have to keep your profits and slide back to the left, especially if you have a big payday and your corporation needs that money to buy perhaps a permanent train, because if that corporation can't buy it, then you'll have to buy it for them. Here I might just mention one other possible strategy of owning two companies is to have one company where you focus on getting the stock value as high as possible and another company where you don't really worry about the stock value as much. Have them withhold a lot more money, buy the trains, and feed those trains into the company that you're trying to value the stock the highest. Alright, so we have just one more major concept to cover and it's been something that I've been ignoring up to now but a very important part of 18xx games. Concept number six, private companies. Alright, so up to now I've really given you the base of what you need to know about the game 18xx. There's one more small piece of the game that you need to know about, as if the game needed more rules, right? And that is private companies. Private companies aren't really a big deal in the big picture of the game, but strategically and conceptually they add a lot more flavor to the game. The idea being that in the beginning of railroading, there were these small little private companies, and then later on they got squashed by these big corporations that you are creating into the game, which is what happens in this game. And private companies are a part of just about every 18xx game to help give it a bit of flair and a few more strategic choices. At the very beginning of the game, there's an auction to own these different private companies. There are six in 1830. These companies don't build track or operate like the other big corporations do that you build, like the CNO. They're simply represented by a card that the owner will hold and a designated place that these companies are supposedly running on the board. So I've been using the word corporation specifically for those things that you are running, the CNO, the BNO, specifically because I wanted to differentiate the difference between corporations, the things you start up by buying stock in and run, and private companies. Private companies are just these little cards that basically earn you money and maybe give you some added benefits. So what do these private companies do? Well, they'll give you income each turn, and eventually your corporation will buy them, and that will give you money from your corporation, and possibly a little special bonus for the corporation that owns them. So there'll be an auction for these six private companies, and hopefully you'll win one or two, and if you win one, you personally are going to own that and so it will earn you a bit of money into your personal money each turn. At some point you'll decide to sell it to that corporation for how much or how little you get to decide. So then the corporation will own that private company and they'll start earning a little bit of money from that private company and perhaps a small little bonus and you'll have gotten money from your corporation you've gotten paid a little bit of money. So as I said each company is represented by a card each company has a value listed on that card and the amount of income they make for you each turn. And most of them have a special ability. In the vegetable section at the very end, I'll tell you specifically what those six private companies are in 1830. But I want to talk a little bit more in general about private companies, starting with the auction. Because the auction that we start with, the auction mechanism is a little bit bizarre. 
This is actually the first thing that happens in a game of 18xx. Before we start that first stock round where players buy up to start their first corporation, we have this auction for the private companies. The word I use for this is a waterfall auction, and I'll explain why. There are six private companies available in the game, and they have starting values. Their starting values are 20, 40, 70, 110, 160, and 220. On your turn, you're either allowed to buy the lowest value company, which is the 20 company, or you can place a bid on one of the other five companies for at least $5 above the purchase price. So, for example, I could buy that 20, or I could say, all right, I will bid 75 on the 70. Now, typically in this game, the 20 private company doesn't really make a big impact, so the players will instead place their stake on one of those five more valuable companies. So a typical first turn is say, all right, I'll bid 165 on the 160 company. There's not really a good way to keep track of who bid on what. We use one of our little poker chips in the direction of the player that bid on them, sort of Agricola style. You could write it down on a piece of paper or so on or just remember, but you really need to keep track of who bid on what. So how it might go is maybe I start this, I bid 165 on the 160. The next player bids 225 on the 220. The third player bids 170 on the 160 as well. And what you're doing by bidding on one of these companies is putting an intent of interest in one of those companies. And this will continue and continue and continue until probably one to three players have bid on all of those five companies that you can bid on. And the reason is because when someone buys that 20 company, that lowest valued company, it sort of unplugs the waterfall and all the other companies auctions are resolved from least to greatest. After the 20s purchased, we would look at who bid on the 40, and if only one person bid on that 40 for 45, then they would just win it for 45. Now, if there were two players, if player A had been bid 45 on it, and player B had bid 50, then an auction would occur between those players, but only those players already involved, player A and player B. So player B is now winning, but player A had a stake in it, they had already placed a bid, so they have the option to bid 55 and so on, and those players would continue until the bid was resolved. You must increase the bid by at least $5. Then we'd go to the 70 company and have an auction between the players who have already bid on that company, and so on. So this is why it's important to get your stake down on two or three companies that you're interested in as soon as possible. Also, do not buy that first company until you're happy with everyone who has bid on the different companies. You're going to want to look at that, see who's going to get what, or at least who's going to get to bid on which companies. Usually the person who finally decides to buy that first company is really happy with how the other auctions look. For example, they might have two of those private companies that they're the only bidders on. So you want to look and see what will happen before you buy that first company. Now the last thing to consider in this auction is to not get so excited buying these private companies that you don't have enough money to start a corporation when we get into the stock round. You'll want to do the math and know how much money to have left. This is why calculators are good to have on hand in this game. So we've covered the auction and you bought a private company. Great. What do private companies do? Well it earns money. At the beginning of each operating round you're going to get the amount of income stated on the card, somewhere from 5 to 30 bucks. 
And at the start of every operating round, you must remember to pay the privates. Usually the guy with the most private companies is responsible for remembering that. And so you just take money from the bank and you get to put it into your personal money. Later in the game, there'll be two operating rounds. So you get paid at the beginning of each of those operating rounds. Don't forget, it's easy to. When you get started, right before you operate that first highest valued corporation, someone say, pay the privates so that everybody who has a private company gets paid their income. All right, so getting paid every operating round is nice, but it's really only part of the benefit of these private companies. Now, remember that train progression? The train progression also affects private companies. After the first three train is bought, you can sell your private company to one of your corporations. When you sell your private company to that train corporation, you get to choose a reasonable price. A reasonable price in terms of the game rules is half to twice the stated value on the card. So if I have the private company Delaware and Hudson, the printed value of that company is 70. So when I sell it to my corporation, I can sell it for a price of anywhere between 35 and $140. And I take that money from the corporation and put it in my personal money. Typically, you want to sell it for twice the value, so you're maxing out how much money you get. But it depends on what that corporation is doing and where they are at with their train situation. You can buy those private companies anytime during your operating round. So it could be at the very end, it could be at the very beginning, whenever you would like. This is a good thing for several reasons. You get money for your corporation into your personal money, and personal money is what wins the game. So that's a good thing. But even better, you'll have more money to invest in the next stock round. And that boost in personal money can allow you to get your second railroad corporation off the ground sooner. Or even just buy some stock that will go up in value and earn you more money in that, in that next operating round. As another added benefit, the income from the private company is not lost. When the privates get paid, instead of paying you, now you're going to put the money in the treasury of the corporation who bought it. So the corporation is going to get paid every turn. And finally, some of the private companies that when they're owned by a corporation, they get a special ability. That corporation can lay a free tile or maybe they get a free station token and a tile. So that's good to keep in mind that when you buy one of those private companies, you may want to start with one of the corporations that start nearby where that private company where you get to lay that free tile so that those can kind of work together. The train progression affects private companies in another way, too. At some point, these private companies just go away. When the first five train is bought, which is about the midpoint of the game, these cards are just discarded. So make sure you get that bonus in for the company before then. The last thing you need to know about private companies is that they block track placement early in the game. These private companies are supposedly running on the board, and this is represented by a small black line on a specific hex on the board. And because of that, this tile is blocked until that private company has been sold to a corporation. So be aware of that when you're building track. In your first games, don't worry too much about which private company you end up with, but make sure you end up with at least one of those higher value private companies. As I said, I will go over each private company and their relative strengths a little more specifically in the vegetable section. For now, let's review private companies. We're going to have an auction for private companies at the very beginning of the game. It's a waterfall auction, which means players will place stakes on different companies until someone unplugs that waterfall by buying the cheapest company. And then at that point, there'll be auctions for the private companies between which players have placed stakes in those various companies. 
What the privates do is they pay you each turn until later when you can sell them to your corporations and you sell them to your corporations at half to two times their value. Now the privates will pay the corporations their profits and some of them have that added bonus. And finally, when that first five train is bought, all the private companies go away. All right, I have great news for you. You now should understand the six major concepts of 18XX. Let's go back over all of those in just about one minute. Ready? Go! Concept number one, start up a corporation. You set the value of it, you have to buy at least six shares of stock to get it going. Concept number two, run your corporation. You do this during the operating round. You play a tile, my, may buy a token, you run it, pay out or withhold, move the stock marker, buy more trains. Concept number three, the train progression. As trains are bought, some trains rust, new tiles are available, private companies can be bought or disappear and there will be more operating rounds. Concept number four, owning two companies. You want to start a second company soon. Maybe you start at a higher par value and they can buy trains from each other. Concept number five, the stock market. You could dump corporations. You can sell stock to reduce value of other people's stock. You could start up another company. You might invest in other corporations. And concept number six, private companies. We have the waterfall auction at the beginning, they pay each turn, the corporations buy them, they have special abilities, and then they go away. Whew. There, all of 18xx in just under 60 seconds. All right, so finally, how does all this craziness come to a close and who wins? Well, the game continues. Remember the structure is stock round, operating round. First, it will be one and one, then one stock round, two operating rounds, and then later one stock round, three operating rounds. You'll continue that until someone goes bankrupt, which ends the game immediately, or the bank breaks or runs out of money. If the bank breaks, in 1830, you play until the end of the set of operating rounds. So if it breaks during the stock round, you'll play probably three more operating rounds. If the bank breaks during, say, the second operating round, you would do the second and third operating round, and then the game would be over. To find out the winner, you take your cash on hand, and you add it to your final stock value. And I recommend getting a spreadsheet very easily available on BGG. It'll probably save you 20 minutes of all this adding. And the person with the most money wins the game. All right, so let's pull all this together with a game example in the hamster. Part three, the hamster. How to win the game. So how do you win this game? You win it by increasing your net worth faster than the other players, and by having your stock value go up and getting paid as much dividends as possible. But also by avoiding the two major disasters of either getting dumped on by a worthless corporation or having to pay out of pocket for a very expensive diesel train. To pull all this together, I'm going to tell you the story of two boys, Gallant and Goofus, who played the game 1830. For those of you who never read the magazine Highlights, Gallant and Goofus were cartoon characters who taught children the right way to behave, which they will teach you in this fun, pleasant fairy tale. Gallant will make good moves and remind you of good strategic play. Good boy, Gallant. Goofus will make silly mistakes Silly Goofus. Once upon a time, there were two friends, Gallant and Goofus, who loved choo-choo trains and thought it would be fun to play the game 1830. 
So they got a couple of their friends and began the game. In the first turn of the game, the boys bought private companies. Gallant remembered to save enough money to start a corporation. Goofus did not. Then it was the first stock round, and Gallant started the PRR Corporation, and over the first five rounds bought six shares of stock to start the corporation. His first turn he laid a tile and bought a two-train, but his stock went down because he couldn't run his trains. Poor Gallant. In the next stock round, Goofus was able to get his company up and running. He started the Canadian, because he doesn't listen to good quality podcasts to learn that you shouldn't start a company that is so far away from clumps of cities. In the next operating round, Gallant ran a route from one city to another, starting at his corporation's station, 10 plus 20. The profits were 30! He paid it out, 30 divided by 10 is $3 per share. Gallant has six shares, so he made $18. Other shareholders in the game also earn money, and best of all, Gallant's stock value goes up. Goofus is just getting his corporation going. Poor Goofus. Goofus buys three two-trains and two three-trains because he figures it will be good to have lots and lots of trains. After the next stock round, there are two operating rounds. Plus, the three trains have been bought so we can put down green tiles and corporations can buy private companies. On his second operating round, Gallant has the PRR Corporation buy his private company for double its value. Goofus didn't buy his private company because he forgot. Silly Goofus. Now you won't have extra income to buy shares in the next stock round. In the next stock round, Gallant had a lot of money that he got for selling his private. So he's able to start up a second company, the B&M, at a higher par value. Goofus decides to help out by buying a couple shares of the B&M too. And Goofus makes those moves on the last turns of the stock round so that Gallant gets the priority deal card. In the next operating round, Gallant gets to play the B&M. And first, he buys a two-train from his Pennsylvania corporation for all of its money. In the second set of operating rounds, right before the stock round, Gallant has the PRR with all the money it just took from the B&M by the four train, rusting all the twos and leaving the B&M without a train and without any money. In the next stock round, Gallant sells all of his stock of B&M to give the company with no assets and no money to Goofus. Clever move, Gallant. In the next set of operating rounds, Goofus is forced to buy a four-train with his own money, even having to sell some of his stock. Too bad, Goofus. Gallant rakes in lots and lots of money with his successful Pennsylvania Corporation. In the next stock round, Gallant starts the Erie Corporation at the highest value of 100. That company starts with $1,000 treasury on its first operating round and is able to buy a five-train, which is a permanent train. The Pennsylvania company is still flush with cash from the ransacking of B&M and is able to buy another permanent train. The other players buy up the sixes and the first diesel. And now Goofus is in big trouble. He has two companies, neither with a permanent train. Goofus spends all his cash and sells his stock and still doesn't have enough. Goofus has gone bankrupt. Gallant counts up his stock and cash and wins the game. Though, on the other hand, 
Gallant's moral compass has gone completely haywire, and his once childlike innocence has been replaced by an insatiable lust for power and wealth. So, in the end, there really were no winners. So that's really a lot of what 18xx is about. Manipulate that game system, and the other players, for as much possible profit as you can. See, this game is fun for me because I work in the public sector, and it's, it's all very pretend. I could continue on and say something about how the CEOs of big financial corporations should maybe play this game of 1830, and if they did, maybe they would get out all that evilness and greed out and realize that they were interacting with actual humans who need actual jobs and a stable economy. They could play that real-life financial game more responsibly. Or maybe they would just get better at finding ways to tank our economy for their profits. But this is not a political podcast, so I don't want to get into that. Now, on a final strategy note, um, I've, I've mentioned a lot corporation dumping. You don't necessarily have to dump a corporation on somebody to, to do well and to win in this game. But sometimes it really is your best play, and doing that will lead you to winning the game. And It's sort of an opportunity, and you can't really just play nice if, if that opening becomes available. That's what kind of a game this is. But on the other hand, there are situations where you could potentially dump a company on someone, but if you really look at that company, that company is in pretty good shape, and it could earn you a lot of money. And by getting rid of that company, you're losing out on an opportunity to get even farther in the game and make even more money. So really kind of consider the position of that corporation that you're considering dumping. Just because you can make a dump doesn't mean you always should. Don't take that last sentence out of context, please. And on the flip side, if you recognize companies of your opponents that are just too good to dump, they have really good trains, they have lots of money in their treasury, that shows you that there's some stock there that you can not only invest in safely, but expect a great return on your investment. You're probably going to get paid a lot in dividends, and that stock value is just going to go up and up and up. So that's part of this game, is just recognizing, all right, which is a safe company, and what is that player intending to do with that company. Stock market is a dangerous place, and it's a good thing in this game, it's all fake money. So the only thing left for you to do is go out there and give it a shot. Play 18xx, whether it's 1830 or one of those smaller intro versions. Give it a try. I think you'll really have a great time and enjoy this fantastic game system. Part 4. Footnotes and Musings. Alright, first let's get to the vegetables. This is the section where you need one person familiar with all these little nitty-gritty rules. If you're planning on being shown the game by someone who, who knows the game pretty well, you don't need to focus quite so much on these little vegetables, but they are rules that you need to know if you're going to be launching into this game. So let's get through those vegetables. What have I got? I got about 15 vegetables, a whole garden of vegetables. You wouldn't think there could be more rules, but there are. All right, let's talk about stock first. On the very first turn of the game, you're not allowed to sell stock. Um, you're just buying stock, okay? It's also very important, you remember the rule I said about you, that you can't buy the same kind of stock the turn you sell it. And if it's a really busy stock round, it might not be a bad idea to have somebody be writing down what gets sold by whom, so you remember who can't buy certain stock again, because stock rounds can get kind of long, and you can forget, oh yeah, I did sell that CNO, I'm not allowed to buy it again. 
All right, one thing that can be confusing is when you sell stock, it goes into the bank pool, which is this large rectangular area where all the stock that has been sold goes. And the prices of that stock is different. The price of that stock is the current value of the stock. So you look at the stock chart. The initial offering, those 10 shares that haven't been sold yet, those always stay at that par value. So a lot of times it's going to be cheaper to get one over the other. Initial offering always stays the par value. The bank pool is the current stock value. Sometimes if uh, stock value is down, you can get some real value. You can get some cheap stock that people have dumped into that bank pool. Now let's talk about the bank pool some more. That bank pool, if someone dumps your stock into there, there's actually a benefit to that. If you have stock in that bank pool, that's going to earn you money. Say you ran for $30 or $3 a share, and there were three pieces of stock in that bank pool. Well, you would get three shares value, and that money would go into the company. So remember this. If there is stock in the bank pool, when you pay out dividends, that money... You get the money from whatever stock is in the bank pool, and that goes into the company treasury. So say my train is paying off at $3 a share. I have three stock in the bank pool. My company is going to get $9 of that money. So that can be kind of a nice thing, nice little bonus. Now let's talk about the stock chits, how those go on the stock market. If I start a corporation at 67 and it floats, I put that marker on the stock chart at 67. Now let's say the guy next to me also starts a different company at 67. His little stock marker is going to go on the board at 67 too. His goes underneath mine because mine started first. And the importance in that is that that order has to stay the same. If a company started first, it gets priority. The first priority is the highest value and then it goes to which company started first, which is represented by which one is on top. I mentioned a little bit about flipping the markers, and this is a great way to determine which companies have run during the operating rounds. So say B&O has the highest value, it runs, it pays out. You flip it over and move it to the right. They decide whether they want to buy trains or not, you go to the next person. Maybe it's, I don't know, the people. RR. So the PRR runs. They pay out and move that to the right and flip it over. That way you can see which companies have gone and which have yet to go. Then when you start the next operating round, you want to flip all those chits back over. You do go from the highest value to the lowest value. You may have a tie. There might be one at 80 and another at 80, and they're actually on different squares because some to the right and some higher have the same value. The chit that is the farther to the right has priority. That means they've operated more. So the marker farthest to the right is the tiebreaker if the stocks have the same value. So let's wrap all that up. So you go highest to lowest. If they're on the same square, the one on top goes first. And if they're the same value, the one furthest to the right goes first. Now let's talk about those colored areas on the stock market. There are yellow, orange, and brown areas. And these are special areas for companies that are doing incredibly poorly. They get a lot of their stock sold. It's really in the bottom left area. Most cases, you don't want your stock to be in there. But actually, there's a few bonuses for being in that area. And you might be able to manipulate it to your advantage. So let's talk about what those areas do. Each one of them releases some of the restrictions on stock. If a stock is in the yellow area, those stocks do not count toward your limit. So say I have six PRRs, 
and that goes down in the yellow. I don't count them when I'm counting up my stock to see how much if I'm over the limit. I don't count those PRRs. So that's going to let me buy a lot more stock. At least until the next stock round, if it's out of the limit, then as soon as I can, I have to get back down to my limit once um, that PRR is out of the yellow. The orange is even further down in the stock value. If your company is in there, anyone can own more than 60% of the company or more than six shares. So if your company is doing that poorly, they assume it's okay for you to own seven, eight, nine, ten pieces of stock in that company. That only works until it gets out of the orange. And then finally, the brown areas, it doesn't count towards your limit. You can own more than 60%, and you can buy as much as you want in a turn. So if there are five brown in the bank pool, and it's in the brown area, you could just buy all that up in one turn, whereas normally you can only buy one at a time. So you can really use this to your advantage. If you have a company that's not doing so well, you could buy up a bunch of that stock and then you'd make a bunch of money if that company does well. In the operating rounds, maybe you'd get a lot more dividends, but then the next stock round, you'd have to sell it all back, but you could do so at a profit. So it turned out to be a pretty good deal for you. So yellow, orange, brown. Yellow doesn't count towards the limit. Orange, it doesn't count towards your limit and you can own more than 60%. Brown, it doesn't count towards your limit. You can own more than 60%, and you can buy as much as you want on one turn. All right, so let's talk about trains a little bit. One rule I did not tell you about trains, but it is important, is that there actually are limits on how many trains a corporation may own. And that, again, is handled by the train progression. It kind of works differently in some of the different games. In 1830, you only allowed to have three trains once a four train is bought, and then only two trains once a five train is bought. In the early game, this isn't really a big deal because you can have a lot of trains. In the later game, this gets to be very important because there's a terminology used called train locked. Remember how we were talking about all that fun stuff you could do about having companies buy trains from one another? Well, you can get in a situation where if you have a company with two trains, say they have maybe a four train and a five train, that company is what's considered train locked, meaning they cannot buy another train. They couldn't buy another train from my other company. I couldn't buy another train from the bank. And so that can be kind of a restrictive situation. you got to be careful to watch out for that because sometimes if you're having plans to try to buy a train off another company and your place already has two trains, you don't want to get yourself locked into that situation. Just be aware this is something you may want to point out to new players about the middle of the game to watch out for that two-train restriction because you can get train locked. Let's talk about how the diesels are bought. Um, all the other trains, they just sort of, there's less and less of them and they go up and up in value. And you have to wait till all the ones are bought. The diesels have kind of a funky rule about that. There are two six trains. When someone buys the first six train, diesels are now available, even though there's one more six train there. The diesels have a one time trade in rule, which is used to sort of encourage players to buy that first diesel. And how that works is you can trade in a four train. How that works is diesels usually cost $1,100, but if you trade in a train, it only costs $800. And generally the only time people do that is they trade in a four train because when you trade in a four train, you buy the diesel, the other fours rust. And so you want to do that before someone else does that to you because then they're stuck 
uh, paying $1,100, and they got nothing out of that four train, whereas you at least got a discount on that diesel. So there is a trade-in, but that's basically a one-time deal for the four train. You are allowed to trade in a five, one of the permanent trains, a five or a six train, uh, and get that $300 off. But typically in, in play, people don't do that because you're kind of, in essence, throwing away a train for $300. All right, one more thing about buying trains. According to the rules, you really are allowed to buy trains from other corporations if you can reach some sort of a mutual deal. Um, you can also buy private companies from each other if you work out some sort of a deal. In practice, this doesn't happen very often. But if you're clever enough to come up with something that would work out to mutual benefit, you know, say you have a company that you know is going to be left without a train for a turn and its stock value is going to go down, so you just want to buy sort of a temporary train and you're going to give them a decent amount of money to do that, it is theoretically possible. But it's, it's kind of hard to work out. So I've, I've never seen it happen in my games. But just know that that option is there. Let's talk about the Erie, because the Erie is kind of goofy in 1830. The Erie starts on essentially a yellow tile. And so in order to get the Erie going, you need to play one of those OO tiles, which is a green tile, to get that company started. So really, you can't even get the Erie started until green tile's available, which happens when a three train is bought. So that's one of the reasons you got to kind of wait for that Erie. When the Erie does come in, usually there's a lot of nice track there already built for it, ready to go. So it's a really nice mid to late game option. So don't forget about that Erie. But you can't really get it going right off the bat. And then quickly, let's just talk about the six private companies specifically in 1830, and then maybe you'll get a feel for maybe the companies in other games. as They're pretty, pretty similar from game to game. The first one is Shulkill Valley. It's the cheapest. The cheapest usually doesn't do anything. It just gives you $5. The next one is the Champlain in St. Lawrence. It's a value of 40 It pays out 10 a turn. And it allows you to play a free tile uh, when a corporation owns it onto a specific hex. Next is the Delaware and Hudson. Its price is 70 It pays out 15 bucks. When a corporation buys it, it can lay a tile and a token. You get a freebie on the token, but it's actually on a mountain, so you have to pay for the mountain hex. The next is the Mohawk and Hudson. It has a value of 110 It pays out 20 a turn. This one you can trade in at any point that you want to get one share of the New York Central. So basically, when you're tired of this, you can just cash it in for a piece of stock. The next one is the Camden and Amboy, and it has a price point of 160 and it pays out 25 bucks a turn. And when you get it, you get a share of PRR immediately. You just get that share, you get to hold on to it. It doesn't give a corporation any special bonus, but getting that free stock is a really nice benefit. And then the last one is the Baltimore and Ohio. The person who gets that immediately gets the president's share of the B&O. And so you get a head start on starting that B&O, which is a really nice starting company. But as soon as the Baltimore and Ohio Corporation starts, then this company closes down. So let me tell you that the hottest private company in this game is the Camden and Amboy. And there's a couple reasons for that. One, it gives you income and it gives you this free share. And another reason is its value is 160 bucks. So you can sell it to a corporation for 320 bucks. You can have the corporation pay you 320 bucks for that, which is a nice chunk of change. So the auction for that typically goes pretty high. 
The Baltimore is a pretty nice one to start with because you get started in that B&O, which pays off quite a bit early. And the other ones, you know, are okay. But those are sort of the two hot ones. And I would inform people of that, you know, before you start the auction when you get in this into this game. Some of the other maps reduced how much you can sell privates for from half to one and a half their value because they found that that made the privates a little too powerful, especially some of the higher valued ones. Uh, you could just get too much money from the corporation. Uh, but the rules as stated in this game is half to two times. Since we're talking about other maps, let's talk a little bit about some other rule changes that you might see. Uh, obviously, they're going to have different private companies. Some of them add what's called minor companies. Some of them use what's called partial capitalization, which means instead of when you float a company and start getting the full money, you just get six times the par value, what you know you put into it. And when other people buy stock, then you get that money as they buy it. It, it makes it pretty interesting, but it's a little harder to keep track of. One of the other fun features, some of them do a historical bonus that reward you for connecting these corporations to historically where they served. And that that's kind of a fun little feature. I, I kind of like that rule quirk. And they just have all sorts of endless variations, different tweaks to this system. It's, it's a really flexible system. It, it's pretty intensive and it takes quite a bit of time to learn, but it's a really good, well thought out system and worth the time. So that about wraps up the vegetables. And now let's talk about if you want to get into 18xx, if you haven't played it before and you want to, you, you listen to this, you, you went through all of this and want to get into the game system, how do you do that? Well, you have a, a, quite a few different options. Like I said, there's tons of these games out there, but what's the best one to get started on? There is a version called 18EZ, and that has received a lot of mixed reviews from, from different people. Some people like it, a lot of people don't. I haven't tried that, so I have, I have no experience comment on 18EZ. The best would be for 1830 to come out. It is, it is a bit longer, it's, it's a pretty intensive game, but it really is the core of the system, and it's a, just a great game. So either you could wait for that to come out, my guess is it'll come out later, in 2010, maybe early 2011, or you could try to track down a copy. With news of it being reprinted, maybe the value of that has come down a little bit, but you're probably looking at at least 100 bucks to get a copy of 1830. Another option is to make a copy of the game. There are enough materials out there available on BoardGameGeek to sort of create your own copy. It's all there. The boards, the cards, the charters, everything. In fact, some of it is an improvement artistically than in the original. But if you're going to do that, if you're going to get into the print and play, my advice is to check out 18AL or 18GA. Look up the Board Game Geek entries under those. As of now, here are two scaled down versions of 18XX that are still available for free. The designer has hinted that he's working on a production copy version of these games, and so this will not last much longer. So if you're interested in getting those files, you're going to need to get them soon. But this is a scaled down version of that same game. All you have to do is get them on a zip drive and head them over to your local Kinko's or Office Max and do, start doing some printing and some laminating. I have a did an article where I gave some tips on 
how to put together print and play sets for games. And I've actually put together my own sets of 18AL and 18GA. And they're both really fantastic games. I've had a chance to play both of them. They're exactly what I was looking for. A shorter version of 18XX. It plays in about four hours. The only thing I'd say is they're perfect for three people because they both have only six companies. And if you play with four people, then some people can't get involved in that second company, which is really kind of a drag. They don't have a a way to sort of advance in the game, and it it can be very frustrating. So if you want to get interested in the system, I would put the work together and try to get that 18AL or 18GA. There is a company that is basically creating handmade sets and delivering them. That company is Deep Thought Games. I think it's deepthoughtgames.com. And they, they're making these sets. I think they're making the GA, the AL. I think they also have FL, which is sort of a similar similar sort of game, 18FL. Your only problem there is since they are handmade and hand-chipped, you're looking at about a one-year wait time for that. So at that point, at that rate, you might you may just want to wait for 1830. But if it were me and you had the means to do so, I think the best thing to do right now would be to seek out 18AL. You can get the 18AL materials from John David Galt's website. And actually, there's a redraw of the map and the stock chart, which is just beautiful, which is what I use to print out my copy. So do a little research into that. You'll find that depending on your access to color printing and lamination, you could be looking at somewhere between $50 and $100 to basically put together one of these copies due to the cost of color printing and lamination. Uh, but, you know, if you're looking at how many hours you're going to use this game for, it's it's not a bad investment. It's just realize that, you know, just because they're available for free doesn't mean it's not, it's not going to cost you anything. But especially... I. If it were me and, and I had the means and I'm interested in the system, what I would do is I would try to get that copy of 18AL and try to put that together and then maybe hope and wait for that 1830 to be available. And then you'll know whether or not you like the system and then you can spring for the new version of 1830, which we'll all keep our fingers crossed, comes out and comes out soon. There are some of the games that are currently available. 1856, 1853, 1870 are all not too hard to find. Here's the problem. These are advanced versions of the system I just spent explaining for the last hour and a half. So you're going to have another half hour of rules on top of what I just explained to you. So you really don't want to go that way for starting into this system. I, I really don't recommend it. I, I would say try to get 1830 or, or 18AL, 18GA, or 18FL. So the next problem with getting this to the table, other than availability, is the long play time. So let's talk just for a bit about that. You really have to schedule this as a day. You have to get two or three of your friends and say, hey, do you guys want to try this system? Hopefully they'd be willing to maybe read up on the rules a little bit, perhaps listen to this podcast. And so they're a little bit prepared of knowing what they're getting into. Next, you're probably going to want to play some sort of short version if you're playing 1830. And then having poker chips is a nice thing to have. You don't need those clay poker chips that are, you know, a dollar a chip. You really don't. But what you do need is six colors printed on denominations is perfect. The poker chips come in sleeves of 50. So here's what I recommend if if you want to go out and invest in some poker chips. You don't have to get that fancy. You could you could make it work for 30 or 50 bucks. 
and even cheaper if you really wanted to. Basically, you can spend as much or as little as you want on poker chips. There's just such a range out there. But they come in sleeves of 50, and if you're going to do it, get ones with printed denominations on them and clearly distinguishable colors of these denominations. A sleeve of 1s, 5s, 10s, 25s, 100s, and 500s. And you'll find that that's going to give you a really nice set for not only 18xx, but a lot of other games. You know, you want to use them for Age of Steam or Brass, or there's so many other games that you can use these chips for. They're really a great investment. I love my chips. Love them, love them, love them. Also nice to spend a couple bucks, get the little plastic holders, maybe two or three of those. The aluminum cases are nice, but really functional are those plastic holders so that you can use them during gameplay. We found that having multiple banks, having you know half the bank on one side of the table, half bank on the other side, so there's not one banker. You need to allow players sort of on their honor to sort of reach their own money. That will help the game moving a little bit quicker. As well as you really need to have people who are looking to keep the game moving. If you have that one guy who's the slow guy at your game group, and when he plays with you, he doubles the length of the game. When your average game length is six hours, you may not want to invite that guy to this session. (laughs) You really need people who are able to keep the game moving. Finally, I like to use a spreadsheet, but I just like to use it for, say, that final operating round. When it gets to the end of the game, people aren't really moving a lot around. They know how much their trains are running for. And just find there's all kinds of spreadsheets as files on BoardGameGeek. You have the different shares people have. They have you plug in how much each train is running for, how much each stock value is worth, how much stock each player has, and it tabulates it all up for you. It will probably save you about 20 minutes. It's a fantastic thing. You have a laptop with Excel on it and one of these files, and you're going to be in good shape. Lastly, uh, there's a lot of talk about moderators. And what a moderator is, is it's a program on your computer where basically you plug everything into the computer, the tile lays, the auctions, the stock buys. You plug everything into the computer and just play it on the computer. And that cuts out all the calculations that have to be done. Here's the problem with that. Unless you have four players with four laptops, you have one person who can see exactly what is going on. Um, I I tried using the moderator with my group and so how we tried to fix that was I was putting it into my laptop but we were also doing the same thing in the game so we were playing both hoping that at the end it would just do all the calculations well then the problem with that is you're essentially playing the game twice which actually ended up taking us longer so that's not a great idea either and the solution where everyone has a laptop and they're plugging it into their laptops Well, I don't know. I like to have cardboard in my hands and poker chips and, I don't know, four guys sitting around on laptops just seems kind of weird to me. There's been talk about these electronic tables, you know, basically like the iPad but on a bigger scale and putting uh, board games on that. And I just imagine playing 18xx on one of these electronic tables. I think that would be just the ideal solution. I mean, that would get me away from those poker chips and those cardboard tiles. I think that would be fantastic. Everyone can see what's going on. You can all interact. It does all that calculation for you. It would just be a beautiful thing. So I'm hoping in the future I'll have one of those big computerized tables and we'll play a lot of 18xx on it. But we'll see. We also were hoping for jetpacks, you know, by now. So... All right, I hope I haven't scared you. I hope I've inspired you and 
piqued your interest to get into this great game system. Or maybe I've helped you to teach this system to someone new. And that's it for this episode. Finally, I got to get something from my throat. I think I think I might have laryngitis tomorrow. Thank you for your continued support of this podcast. If you've benefited from this podcast, please, please help me out. Tell a friend about the show. Join the guild. Write an iTunes review. Donate a few bucks. Buy one of those micro badges. I have four owners. Four. That makes me sad. It makes me feel self-conscious and bad about myself. So, you know, if you can help my childlike self-esteem by buying a micro badge, that would be really great. I can happily say that over a thousand people have listened to an episode of How to Play. And over 10,000 episodes have been downloaded. We just keep growing every day. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you, Mark Johnson, for discussing our show on your show. You have a great show. Everybody go check out Mark Johnson's podcast, Board Games to Go. He's the original podcaster. And I want to thank Tom Vassell and Eric and all the guys over at the Dice Tower for having me and letting me put on some of my silly segments over there. Thank you guys very much. I appreciate that. Next episode will be the short episode. I don't know what it's going to be. It's going to be something... Under a half hour. I don't know if I can do it. I, I tend to over-elaborate everything, but we'll see. Maybe maybe no thanks. I'm looking at my game chart here. Maybe, um, maybe Lost Cities. Um, it might be Candyland. It could be Sequence. How to play Sequence. That would be a fun episode. But for now, let me just say thank you for listening. This has been Ryan Sturm for the How to Play Podcast.